We come this evening to the climax of Paul's fool speech in his second letter to the Corinthians. Paul has been responding to a group of false teachers in the church in Corinth that has questioned his apostolic authority, and they've declared their own superiority to him. And among their criticisms of him, they've been saying that Paul is weak, while they, the false teachers, are strong and accomplished. Their spiritual credentials are impressive, while Paul's ministry seems to be beset with humiliating persecutions and sufferings. Last week we looked at a portion of Paul's response in which we said that he was doing two things. First, he confronted the Corinthians for caring too much for the esteem of their culture around them, for valuing too much the things that their culture valued. Second, we said that he began to present to them a theology of weakness and of suffering compared to the theology of strength that his opponents were arguing for. We focused, last Lord's Day, on that first element. In our text tonight, Paul focuses even more on the theme of weakness, and so that will be our focus as well. So then, mind, please listen carefully to our text this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me, that it should leave me, excuse me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word for us. Paul describes in this passage two things, and then he draws some conclusions from them. He speaks about the vision he received, and he speaks about the thorn he received. As we try to understand this text and to grasp its meaning for us, it would be good for us to start with looking at each of those. And so let's start with the vision. What should strike us most about the vision is how little Paul actually tells us about it. His telling of it, in fact, seems fairly unimpressive. And to understand just how impressive it would have seemed and just how significant that is, we need to realize that Paul's opponents in Corinth, these false apostles, the ones whom Paul ironically refers to as super apostles in chapter 11, these false apostles have been boasting of the visions and revelations that they say that they've received. That's part of why Paul says he has to go on to discuss visions and revelations in verse 1 of our text. 
He's ironically and mockingly mirroring the boasting of the false teachers. They boast of their visions and revelations, and so now he must boast of his visions and revelations. On the surface, Paul is mirroring their boasting, but when we look closer, we see he's also turning it on its head. He's inverting what they boast about, and by doing that, he means to rebuke them and to correct them. So they've boasted in their visions and revelations, and now Paul will boast in his, and the irony begins again. First is the timing of the revelation that Paul chooses to speak about. Now, generally speaking, we would imagine that if you're boasting of your revelations, you want to go with one of the more recent ones. You want to show off your current spiritual superiority. Which is why it should strike us as funny that Paul chooses the vision he received 14 years ago. It's not exactly the freshest example of spiritual superiority. Now we know from Galatians 2.2 and Acts 13 verses 1-3 through that Paul had more recent revelations than the one he's choosing to speak about. In fact, verse 7 gives us the same impression. And so off the bat, where Paul's opponents would have boasted in their latest and greatest revelation that they claimed to receive, Paul chooses an old dusty one from 14 years ago. Second, there's the way that the vision is tied to the speaker. Now, we would imagine, again, that those boasting of their visions would make it clear that the vision reflected positively on them personally. It said something about them. And so they would feature prominently in the telling of that vision. Paul, on the other hand, speaks of himself in the third person. He keeps himself at arm's length when he tells the story. We can figure out from looking at the text as a whole that he is, in fact, speaking of himself, but he talks as if he's not. Paul detaches the vision from his own person. Again, he's inverting the typical boast. Then third, he goes on to describe what it was like. But not really. In fact, he almost tells us almost nothing of what it was like. Where Paul's opponents might have been giving intriguing details about their experience, Paul gives us none. In fact, he emphasizes that he's not even sure the details of what was going on. He repeats his ignorance about the nature of how he received the vision twice, and he does it in such a way that it feels kind of tedious, and if any awe was building up from the telling, that seems to cut it short. And finally, there's the content of the vision, the great spiritual mysteries that were revealed to him. And here Paul tells us that he can't tell us any of them. This is the final way that Paul intentionally seems to make the telling of his vision fall flat. We would at least expect that he would share with us some revelation he received in the third heaven, in the highest heaven, but he says he won't. As a consequence, since he doesn't really share the content of the vision, the content of the, vi- content of the vision can't be used to authenticate his apostolic calling. And that's what the false teachers were essentially doing. They were claiming that their visions and revelations authenticated their ministry. But Paul brings back nothing to wow us from the vision that he received. So Paul's telling of the vision is an intentional dud. His spiritual accomplishment is skimmed over. But then we learn that there is one aspect of his vision that he can share with us. Though it's not something we might expect. What he apparently can tell us is about the thorn in his flesh. In the context of his vision, Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So what then is this thorn in Paul's flesh? What real life thing is it meant to represent? 
Well, some have suggested that Paul's thorn in the flesh is the persecutions that he was given in his ministry. Others have argued that it was actually a form of sexual temptation that he faced. Some have argued that it's the Judaizers, while others have argued that it was a physical affliction of some kind. Some have argued that it was those who opposed his ministry, people like the teachers, the false teachers in Corinth. Others have argued that it actually was a medical problem, maybe even something like epilepsy. Still others have argued that it was a psychological problem, possibly something that included bouts with depression. The reality is that we just don't know what the thorn in Paul's flesh refers to. And chances are we probably won't in this life. One commentator wonders if the Corinthians even had any idea what Paul was talking about when they received his letter. And though there's an intense interest in knowing what he's referring to, maybe it's for the best that we don't. Because it forces us then to think in categories instead of the specifics of Paul's life. What we can say from our text is that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some kind of weakness and some kind of limitation placed in his life. He tells us as much in verse 9. And that's the point that Paul is making, what he directs our attention to, what he speaks of in such a way that intrigues us. The thing that he speaks of in a way that, that catches our attention is not the vision that he received, but it's the weakness and the limitation that the Lord gave him. That's what draws our attention in. It's probably no coincidence that that's what so much speculation is about in the commentaries over the centuries. Paul makes it clear that he could have boasted in his visions, and it wouldn't have been foolish because he actually had visions. His were real. That's the point he's making in verse 6. Paul isn't refraining from speaking of those visions because he doesn't have them. He's refraining from speaking about them because he wants the Corinthians to see that they don't really matter that they're not what's important. And so he refers to his old vision with a nondescript language while drawing our attention to the weakness that the Lord gave him instead. In fact, it seems that the one piece of revelation, the one word from the Lord that Paul is able or is willing to share with us is the word about the thorn. That single line. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's all we get to hear. Paul skims over his visions, he skims over his spiritual accomplishments while emphasizing his weaknesses and his limitations. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because his opponents in Corinth hated weaknesses and limitations. And they hated weaknesses and limitations because what they most valued were accomplishments. And many of the Christians in Corinth felt the same way. And of course, Many Christians today feel the same way as well. I don't think, at least most of the time, you and I are even that different from that. I think that, like the Corinthians, you and I also tend to hate weaknesses and limitations. Because we tend to especially value accomplishments. Do you think that's true? Before you answer for yourself, maybe you should stop and identify what your weaknesses or limitations might be. What is it that has been placed in your life that makes you weaker than you'd be without it? That places limits on you? And let's make it as it was in the Apostle Paul's case, something that you didn't necessarily choose. What unchosen weaknesses and limitations are part of your life? 
could be a physical limitation, some bodily or medical struggle, something that makes it so that you cannot do certain things that you wish you could do, a medical condition that you did not choose that hinders you. could be a mental or emotional limitation, maybe an ongoing struggle with anxiety or depression or something else. doesn't need to be something that's completely debilitating, but something that limits you in some way. Well, there are things that you wish you could do, accomplishments you wish you could achieve and pursue, but maybe those mental or emotional struggles limit your capacity. They limit your resilience. They limit you. It could be a spiritual limitation, a persistent struggle with temptation to sin, a struggle with temptation to doubt, maybe a struggle with temptation to unnecessarily question your assurance, some spiritual struggle that limits your spiritual accomplishments, that makes you feel spiritually weak. Or it could be a relational limitation. On the one hand, it could be someone like Paul's opponent, who is a thorn in the flesh because they sin against you. But it doesn't need to be something like that. It could be someone who, simply by some need that they have, puts limitations on you. Paul says that his thorn was a messenger of Satan, meaning that Satan was using that to weaken him. But the thorn itself doesn't need to be sinful. Satan can use brokenness as well as sin to weaken and to limit us. And so your weakness or limitation could be a person who is especially reliant on you right now, and maybe through no fault of their own. Maybe it's a friend or a loved one with a medical need, a child, a parent, a spouse, Maybe it's someone who struggles with mental or emotional health, or someone struggling spiritually. But someone who, by the nature of their need from you, limits you. They limit what you might otherwise be able to accomplish. Or again, in your case, maybe it is someone who has sinned against you and limited you in that way. Or if it's not a personal or a relational condition, maybe it's some situation you face, struggles and limitations outside of your control when it comes to your job or your finances or your living situation or something else. It could be medical, it could be mental or emotional, spiritual or relational, something in your situation. So what might it be for you? What is that limitation, that thing that keeps you from accomplishing something you might otherwise be able to accomplish? And if you're honest with yourself, how do you feel about that limitation? How do you feel about that weakness in your life? I imagine each of us might feel a range of things, maybe different things at different times, but I think that sometimes we hate those limitations. If it's a person, we might still love the person, but hate the limits that have been brought into our lives through them. Whatever the source may be, physical, emotional, relational, something else, we tend to hate the weaknesses that those limitations bring. Maybe it makes us angry sometimes. And when we hate it, the reason that we often do is because it limits what we can accomplish. It limits what we can do, what we can achieve. And like many in our culture, we tend to, ev- to value accomplishment above most other things. Again, a lot like the Corinthians. It's a common pattern in our culture. We live in a culture that believes that any limitation in our lives that can be eliminated should be eliminated. And so if the religion that you grew up in is limiting your options, if it's inhibiting your ability to live as you want to live rather than enhancing your ability to live as you want to, 
then you should leave that religion for something else, something that works for you. Or if your spouse is limiting your ability to achieve what you want economically or socially, or even just limiting your ability to self-actualize, then you should, some would even urge you, you must, leave that spouse behind. That is really the idea behind no-fault divorce. That's what it's about. It's about those times when no one has broken the marriage vows through adultery or abuse or abandonment, but your spouse is just limiting your potential, keeping you from the life that you think you could achieve without them. Such limitations should be eliminated, our culture tells us. That's even a significant strain of thought behind the idea of a right to abortion in our culture. In one Supreme Court decision upholding a constitutional right to abortion, the justices wrote that the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. In a different Supreme Court case, in a dissenting opinion that was arguing against any federal restrictions on abortion, Justice Ginsburg wrote that when it comes to abortion, the key issues center on a woman's autonomy to determine her life's course and thus to enjoy equal citizenship stature. Now, on one level, those ideas sound like common beliefs about equality in our culture. But what are they really saying in these particular instances? What they're saying is that fertility, pregnancy, a baby, these things can be limitations on a woman's ability to achieve her full potential in her economic and her social accomplishments. And she, therefore, has a right to eliminate any such limitations, whatever the cost. Now, we evangelicals see the deep flaws in these ruthless forms in which people are told to eliminate weaknesses and limits in their lives so that they can devote themselves to achievements that they desire. But even while we see the problems there, I think we tend to share other people's disdain for limitations and weakness more than we think. We might rightly refuse and fight against the specific means of eliminating limitations that I've just mentioned, but in other areas, we too want to eliminate them just as much, almost. What might that look like for us? One thing that we might do is simply deny the weaknesses and limitations that have been put in our lives. We deny that they exist, or we deny that they limit us. We insist that whatever it is, it doesn't really affect us. The medical condition won't keep us from doing anything we want to. The mental or emotional or spiritual struggle can be overcome with just a little positivity and willpower. The relational issue need not bother us. We can do it all. We will not let anything limit us. But of course, it's a lie. It does limit you. You could accomplish more without it. And often, that fact drives us nuts. Because we hate our weaknesses and limitations. We hate how they make us look. We hate how they make us feel. Or another thing we might do is we feed the lie that we can get to a point when our limitations will be eliminated. This could take a few different forms. We might think that maturity will mean no more weaknesses and no more limits one day. In order to feed that belief, to encourage us in that, we demand perfect-looking leaders. We demand leaders who can stand before us, confirming for us that we too can achieve limitless perfection. And that's basically the problem that Paul is facing in Corinth. Paul was personally beset by weaknesses. The false teachers in Corinth projected power and strength and perfection. They had it all together. 
And that's what the Corinthians wanted. They wanted a perfect-looking leader to confirm their belief that they, too, could one day mature enough to the point where they would overcome all their limitations. But Paul's whole point in his letter is that that's a lie. Instead of trying to fulfill their desire for a perfect-looking leader, instead of trying to convince them that he is that leader for them, Paul flaunts his weakness in their face. Because he knows that maturity in the gospel does not mean the elimination of all limits and all weaknesses. Another thing we might do is we choose to believe that with the right amount of prayer and devotion, Jesus will eliminate the things that limit and weaken us. And maybe he will. But maybe he won't. Paul throws that in our face as well. The shocking thing from Paul's story about the thorn in his flesh is not just that it was given to him, but that when he, the Apostle Paul, pleaded with the Lord to remove it, the Lord basically said no. In some cases, no amount of prayer or devotion will lead to the elimination of the limitations that the Lord has brought into our life. Some of us want to believe that faith will effectively nullify our limitations, that through faith we will accomplish what our limitations might have prevented. Now, maybe sometimes that happens, but it doesn't seem to be the case here with Paul. We can look at Paul's life. Think of not just this mysterious thorn that he talks about here, but think about all the hardships that the Lord brought into his life. The persecutions, the oppositions, the false teachers, the shipwrecks, the dangerous journeys, all of it. God surely assisted the Apostle Paul. But do you really think that if those hardships had all been eliminated, if Paul never had to deal with any of them, with any of the opponents or the persecutions or the heresies or the struggles or the dangers, do you really think that if all those obstacles were removed, that Paul wouldn't have planted even more churches? That he wouldn't have preached even more sermons? That he would have wouldn't have written even more letters. Do you really think the Lord's work strengthening Paul meant that he accomplished just as much as he would have if none of those barriers had been in place in the first place? We'll talk in a little bit about what the Lord must have meant when he said, my power is made perfect in weakness. But I don't think he means that if we have enough faith, then we'll automatically achieve the same accomplishments we would have if if we'd never faced obstacles or limitations at all. In all these different ways, you and I try to convince ourselves that the limitations we face can be eliminated. And we tell ourselves that we tell ourselves that mainly because we hate the idea that our hardships that we face will affect or reduce the amount that we can achieve in this world. This even comes out in people who give up because of their limitations. People who stop trying, people who resp- respond to their limitations with despair. They despair because their limitations will keep them from the achievements they desire. And that is worth despair in their minds because they too prize accomplishments above most other things. When we approach life and limitations this way, our assumption is that strength, that the kind of strength that matters is capability and competence. It's the ability to accomplish what we seek to accomplish. After all, productivity, efficiency, these are some of the idols of our culture. And in that context, weakness and limitations, our failure to accomplish what we want to, these are things to be despised. And that's pretty much the view that Paul's opponents in Corinth had as well. But Paul's claim in this letter is that this view is counter to the gospel. 
Paul confronts it. He mocks it, as we talked about last week. He shows that by holding to this view, by subscribing to this view of strength, the Corinthians are captive to the esteem of their culture. And then he inverts his opponent's view with the gospel. Paul's message to the Corinthians here, and the scripture's message to us tonight, is that Jesus gives us weaknesses and limitations because what he most values for us is Christ-likeness and not worldly accomplishments. Christ brings weaknesses and limitations into our lives in order to make us more like him, because that is what his chief goal is for us. We see that in our text. First, the obvious fact is that it's the Lord who gives the thorn to Paul. Paul seems to be using what is known as the divine passive in verse 7 to indicate that the thorn indeed comes from God. Second, note the Lord's goal for Paul in giving him this thorn, this weakness. He says that it's so that he will be more Christ-like, essentially, rather than that he will have a high-achieving ministry. It is concern for his humility rather than what he can do on the ground. In verse 7, we're told that the Lord gave it to him so that he wouldn't become conceited. Think about what that means. As we said, the Lord was more concerned that Paul become more like Christ than that he have a more high-achieving ministry. And Paul tells us that this isn't an isolated case, this thorn. Paul tells us himself that he applies the same rationale to the other sufferings that he's faced. He applies it to the other weaknesses in verse 10. He sees the same dynamic at work, not just with the thorn, but in all of those hardships that have come into his life. And what is that dynamic that he sees? Well, he tells us in verse 9, The Lord says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, what does that mean? So I've already said, one thing that I don't think it means is that Jesus enables Paul to accomplish things just as he might have without having any weaknesses in the first place. In other words, I don't think that Jesus means the same thing by power or strength that the false teachers in Corinth meant by power or strength. When the false teachers speak of strength, they have in mind their capability to achieve, to pile up certain worldly accomplishments. It's a little like the Christian workout clothes that have Philippians 4.13 printed on them. Have you seen these? The workout clothes that say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just to let you know, when Paul said that in his letter to the Philippians, he did not mean that trusting in Jesus would help you do more crunches or run a faster mile. In context, what he meant was that Christ gave him strength to persevere in the faith. That Christ gave him holy endurance. That Christ gave him patient Christ-likeness. And in the same way, in verse 9 of our text, I don't think Jesus' point is that if you rely on him, you can rack up just as many worldly accomplishments as someone else. We said already that we see from verse 7 that the Lord's primary goal is to grow Christ-likeness in Paul. It would seem then that the same ideas at work when he speaks here of power. He's not speaking of the power to achieve, but the power to persevere in the faith. The strength of holy endurance, the strength of Christ-like patience. That is the power that the Lord is aiming at making perfect through Paul's weaknesses. Paul sees that that dynamic is at work in his thorn and in every other weakness and limitation that the Lord has brought into his life. The Lord gives Paul weaknesses and limitations because his chief goal for Paul 
is he's becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's why Paul can say in verse 10 that for Christ's sake, he's actually content with weaknesses. That's why he says he will boast of them in verse 5. It's not because the weaknesses don't limit Paul anymore. It's also not because there's some sort of accomplishment that he takes pride in in that way. But it's because Paul has come to share the Lord's goal for him. He too desires growth in Christ-likeness above almost everything else, including above worldly achievements. And so he can be content with the means that the Lord is using to bring about that Christ-likeness. It doesn't mean that the limitations and the weaknesses don't hurt. They often do. It just means that Paul could be content with the work that Christ was accomplishing in him through those weaknesses, even if they're painful. Have you thought about your weaknesses or limitations in that way? I may be patiently serving that loved one who needs more from you, that loved one who's limiting your potential for worldly achievements, how they might actually be the means by which God is working in you something more valuable than any achievement you might make in the world. The shaping of your heart and your life more and more into the image of Christ. How maybe learning to live faithfully with that physical or that mental or emotional or spiritual struggle or limitation, that thing that keeps you from accomplishing all you wish you could accomplish, how maybe by learning to live faithfully with that struggle, God is growing in you a holy endurance that is far more valuable than anything you could accomplish in this world. And maybe learning to faithfully deal with the people or situations standing in your way, keeping you from your goals, and maybe that is growing in you the persevering heart of Christ, a heart of love and kindness and gentleness, and that that is more important and of more value than the thing that you're actually pursuing. If Jesus has given you a hardship, if he has placed an obstacle in your life, can you see how he aims to grow Christ-likeness in you through it? And if you do see that, then do you also see, as he does, how much more valuable that is than the worldly achievements you might desire? It's a little bit like weightlifting, I think. I've made jokes about this before in my sermons that I'm not particularly a big fan of exercise. But one type of exercise I did enjoy in high school and college was weightlifting. You can think of it like this. You can imagine a high school football coach walks into the weight room and sees one of his players lying on the bench doing bench presses. Doing bench presses with just the weight bar, with no weight on it. And he's counting out loud and he has a very self-satisfied smile on his face. He's counting 97, 98, 99, 100. He's feeling good. And the coach kind of tilts his head, puzzled by what he sees. He comes over and he patiently tells the player to put the bar on the rack. Then he goes over to the weights and he puts the 45-pound plate and the 20-pound plate on each side, increasing the weight from 45 pounds to 175. And then he tells the player to try again. And the player tries, and with a lot of stress and strain, he's able to do 10 reps. A lot less than the 100 that he easily did before with just the 45-pound bar. And the coach helps him get the bar back on the rack once he's done and nods his head and says, Okay, I want you to work with that weight from now on when you bench. And imagine the high school football player gets mad at him. Why did the coach put the weight on the bar? He was doing great before he interfered and did that. He had done 100 reps. He probably could have done 100 more. And he was going to tell all his friends about it. 
but now he can barely do ten. Why had the coach thwarted his goals like this? In that moment, the wise coach and the short-sighted player have very different goals. The player just wants to achieve as many reps as he can, to move that bar up and down a lot and have a large number of reps that he can then brag about. If that's his goal, then any weight placed on the bar is an obstacle. It's a limitation to be despised. The coach has a different goal. He sees how frivolous the player's goal actually is, and he tries to shift him to a new one. The coach wants to see the player actually grow. He wants to see the player acquire a strength that will really mean something. Strength that will have value outside of the weight room. And even when the player begins to be able to do more reps with 175 pounds, the coach's response is just going to be to add more weight. Because the coach has a higher goal in mind than counting reps. So for him, the weight is not an obstacle, they're an opportunity. Far too often, we're like that high school football player. We find some worldly accomplishment, and we invest it with all kinds of meaning, and we want to achieve at it. We want to pile up those reps so we can tell everyone about it. And Jesus sees us, and then he places limitations in our lives. He adds some weight to the bar. And often we are indignant because we have the wrong goals. Like an athlete who realizes the value of what his coach is doing, Paul had learned to see things from the Lord's perspective. He had come to see the frivolousness of the achievements, the worldly strength that he had pursued in his past life. And he has come to see the weightiness of Christ-like strength that the Lord wants to develop in him. And so he became content with those limitations. He could boast in them because he saw what they were there for. The process was still hard. That didn't change. But at least now he shared the right goal. He valued the right things. The question for us to consider is, do we? Where have you fixated on the wrong goals? Where has Christ given you opportunities for true growth that you have despised as obstacles to your worldly success? Where have you been indignant at the coach for putting more weight on the bar? What would it look like to shift your perspective to Christ's? To desire holiness more than you desire worldly accomplishments? That is what Paul calls us to pursue in this text. That is the target he calls us to aim for, to value what the Lord values, to see the beauty of holiness and to long for it in our own hearts and lives. Then, when challenges and limitations come, we will remember that God's grace is sufficient for us. Then we will look for his strength, the strength of Christ-like endurance in our lives. Then we will be able to say, I am content with weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May Christ work in each of us that it may be true for us as well. Amen.